We're going to finish our series today on sin. Uh, We've spent the last seven weeks or so uh, talking about sin, and we're going to finish it up this morning. Next week's our missions conference, then we're going to do some stuff about the holy days, and then we're going to start after Easter a brand new series on the book of Acts for 12 weeks. I'm really looking forward to working through that really important book uh, with you. But today we're going to finish up our series on sin. Um, We're going to be in a couple places in Scripture. We got some... uh, Young people coming down the aisles with Bibles, so if you need one, just raise your hand and they will get you one. Um, But so far as we've been working through this series, we've talked about a lot of sins that are more or less obvious, um, sins that um, pretty much everybody would say, yeah, I don't want to be a part of that, right? We've talked about addiction. Uh, We've talked about the consequences of those addictions. We've talked about some some pretty serious stuff. But today I want to talk about, as we finish this series, a sin that maybe uh, is a little bit more acceptable, uh, something that I would imagine a lot of us probably engage with on a regular basis and maybe wouldn't even uh, consider it a sin. Maybe we don't even recognize uh, what we're doing, but it's still something that's uh, significant and it's something that the Scripture speaks really strongly about. So we're going to start with uh, a teaching from Jesus And then we're going to see how that is expanded upon throughout the New Testament. We're going to look at three different passages and approach this from three different angles. And then we're going to wrap it all up by coming back uh, to Jesus. And we're going to end it with with that. So let's have a word of prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll jump into the text. God, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you convict us if we need to be convicted. We pray that you encourage us if we need to be encouraged. We pray that as we open these things, that we do so with humility, and we also do so with the affirmation that your scriptures are powerful, and your scriptures can transform and change our lives and our world. And so we just ask that you speak to us now in this time. In your name, amen. Uh, So one of Jesus's most well-known speaking engagements was something called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, which if you're new to the, to the New Testament, it's uh, early in the book of Matthew where Jesus gathers all his disciples and he preaches all of these different teachings. And many people see the Sermon on the Mount as kind of Jesus's outline or his primer in some ways about the things that he cares about or the things that he was teaching. Um, and in that, he interacts with some of the Jewish customs at the time. Uh, he talks about the Jewish law, which was something that was given to them years and years and years and generations and generations ago. But by the time Jesus came around, uh, that law had become something different than it was ever intended to be. Some of the religious leaders at the time began to develop um, what's called a fence that they built around the law of their own tradition, saying, uh, you need to follow what we say more or as important as you need to follow what the Lord said or what the scriptures themselves say. And so Jesus comes to teach against that, and he comes uh, to kind of present a true understanding of what the Mosaic Law. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, there's this passage where he says this. You've heard it said, or you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So Jesus here is referencing uh, one of the Ten Commandments, right? But then he says this. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, 
will be in dangers of the fires of hell. So that kind of escalated quickly, right? <laughs> Jesus goes, don't murder, but if you call your friend a fool, you're going to go to the fires of hell. So <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on here in a lot of first century context. Um, the, the actual Greek here is talking about the fires of Gehenna, which was a physical place outside the walls of Jerusalem where trash burned all the time. But we're not going to get too much into what Jesus is doing here. But what I want to focus on is what Jesus is commanding his people not to do or telling his people not to do. So it's not just about not murdering, but he says, if you say, you fool, to a brother or sister, or if you say, raka, to a brother and sister, you are, uh, you are sinning, you're, you're out of line with God. So what is this word raka? Raka is an Aramaic word. Aramaic was the common language of the first century. A lot of times we think Jesus spoke Hebrew. Um, most likely he, he spoke and taught in Aramaic, which was uh, uh, the language of the people. Um, and so raka is a, a word that literally means something like empty-headed or empty one. So when you call someone raka, you are saying that they are somebody who doesn't have anything going on up there, who doesn't have any brains, who doesn't have any wisdom. And so obviously this is an insult, right? This isn't something uh, that you're going to say to the people that you love. But uh, when we break it down, raka is a term of contempt, a term of contempt. Now, what is contempt? Uh, An English definition, uh, contempt is saying that somebody or something is beneath consideration, that they're worthless, that they're deserving of scorn. So when you show contempt to someone or something, you're saying that you are up here and that person or that thing uh, is way down here. And so this term raka is a term of contempt. Sometimes you may have heard the phrase contempt of the court, right? If somebody is on trial and they do something that say, yeah, the way that the court system, that's not important. We need to do things my way. You say, well, you're in contempt of the court and that's not good. Um, But more often, contempt is something that we aim at people. Somebody who is beneath consideration, who's worthless, deserving of scorn. Maybe another way uh, to think about it is contempt is saying that somebody has less worth than you. Contempt is saying that somebody has less value than you, less dignity than you. In a way, contempt is saying that that person, because they are below you, they're kind of a nuisance. (laughs) They're in the way. They're stopping you from getting what you want to do. And so when Jesus criticizes or Jesus challenges his disciples to not say raka or equates raka with breaking of the law, Jesus is speaking to them about looking at other people as if they are nothing but a waste of space. People who are in the way of you getting where you want to go. People who are below you on many levels. And I think a lot of us, if if we... When we actually like think of it that way, we think, oh, we, we don't do that. We respect people. We love people. And, and I think for the most part we do. But uh, I want to approach this from three different areas. And I think at least one of these will resonate with you in a way that you say, well, I guess I kind of do that if I'm, if I'm honest with myself. I think perhaps I do look at someone or something uh, with contempt. And so we're going to hit this from three different angles. The first one is we're going to talk about uh, showing contempt for the people who are above you. So turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 is on page 817 if you're playing along at home. Uh, Ephesians is a letter that Paul 
one of the early leaders of the Christian church, wrote to Christians living in what we would call modern-day Turkey in a city called Ephesus. Uh, And he's writing to them, and he's teaching them about God, but he's also teaching them how to live uh, in light of all of the things that God has done for them. And so in Ephesians 5 and 6, uh, Paul goes into detail about different relationships that are existing within the church community, and he tells them how to respond. So in chapter 6, um, verse 5, Paul says this, Slaves, okay, stop right there, because um, I'm sure a lot of you are like, all right, not me, right? Because I don't think any of us here are slaves. Um, slavery in the first century, um, while there's a big variety of, of how slaves were treated and how slaves interacted with their masters. By and large, this is not the type of slavery that we had in America uh, a couple hundred years ago. Uh, our slavery uh, was based almost completely on ethnicity, right? It was a racial-driven slavery. Uh, they put these people in slavery because they looked different and they were a different ethnicity, and so therefore they became slaves. And there was really no way out of that. You were stuck simply because you were, uh, you were African descent. In the first century, um, maybe it's more helpful to think of slavery as kind of like low-paying employment. <laughs> um, for the most part, slaves had more or less freedom. Uh, the assumption is that they were able to leave their home and go to church because this letter is being read in a church and Paul is addressing slaves, so he assumes that they're there. Um, slaves got paid a, a wage. They're able to go and buy things, but they simply had uh, basically like a long-term contract with their employer, um, maybe a, a forever contract. So slavery is maybe, think, maybe it's better to think of slavery in terms of a worker and a boss relationship rather than a slave master like you would think of uh, in America in the, you know, whenever that took place, Okay. So kind of get that in mind, and then this way, a lot of us can actually find ourselves in this story. Don't think of them as slaves, but think of them as employees, and maybe this will help you a little bit. So Paul says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor, not only, so you can do that, uh, when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. So Paul says to these slaves, these employees, treat your boss, treat your master with respect and dignity and honor. This is easy if you got a good boss, right? (laughs) Some of you have bosses that you love. Maybe you can think back to a time when you've had an employer that you just loved getting up and going to work in the morning. Maybe you are the employer, and so you're like, yeah, this is great. Uh, but, you know, this is easy when you got a good boss. <laughs> but I'm sure every single person in here, whether it's a boss or whether it's a teacher at school or, or whatever it is, have had that one authority figure where it's just like, I really do feel like a slave and <laughs> they're a master, right? For whatever reason, they're rude. Uh, they're, they're mean, maybe they just think of themselves from your perspective. Uh, most likely, this is a person who doesn't share your belief system, right? Somebody who's not a Christian, somebody who doesn't have the values of the gospel. And so when you think of that relationship, it's just this overwhelming negative experience. Anybody? Okay, a couple of you, good. Uh, 
one of the things that I think is interesting uh, is that Paul is assuming here that the masters are not all good people. (laughs) In fact, he's assuming that a lot of these slaves are working for masters who are not Christians. Uh, In some of his other letters and some of the other New Testament writings, it talks about slaves obeying your master so that they may come to a knowledge of the gospel. In other words, they're not there yet, but if you treat them with respect and honor, perhaps they will see that and that will bring them to the gospel. And so this is the first relationship in which we want to see the need to avoid the contempt that Jesus uh, is criticizing in his Sermon on the Mount. How easy is it for us to think of our boss or our teacher or maybe a politician that you don't like or whoever it is that's above you to think of them in terms of they are a waste of space. They are worthless. They're just in my way of me doing my job. It's really easy for us to do that, and it's really easy for us to fall into that line of thinking because that's the way that our culture tells us to treat those who are in authority, right? To treat them with disrespect, to treat them with dishonor, to treat them as less than us. Even though they're up there, they're still below you. Jesus says very clearly, (laughs) don't treat people with contempt. Paul says very clearly, slaves, treat your masters with respect. And why? Do that because in some way, the way that you treat them is connected to your faith. Keep that in mind. We're going to see that theme kind of woven throughout. So this is this first area uh, that we need to be careful about. We need to be careful about treating those who are above us with respect and with honor and with dignity. Now, I'm not saying that you need to just be a a doormat and let them push you all over. There are appropriate ways for you to confront and to speak and to implement change if it's necessary. But that's different than talking to your coworkers about, ah, you see old, you know, whatever, insert derogatory statement here. Or do you hear what he said? Or why is he always doing this? Why do they always, I wish he just knew what he was talking about or she knew what that she was talking about, right? Contempt for those above us. There's no place in the gospel for that. There's no place in the Christian faith to treat those who are above us as if they were simply worthless, contemptuous uh, in the way. So when we look up, uh, Jesus' teaching is, Treat with respect, honor, and dignity. Paul's teaching is treat with respect, honor, and dignity. Like they have value, like they have worth, like they're not just in your way. So that's looking up. Now, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. And let's talk about looking down. Uh, Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians is another one of Paul's letters. He wrote this to um, Christians living in the city of Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece at the time It was one of the biggest cities in the entire Roman Empire. And so this was one of the bigger Christian churches. Paul planted this church. He stayed there for about 18 months, and then he had to leave. And after he left, things kind of all went haywire. So he has to write these letters to correct them. One of the issues that Paul is dealing with, and this is what we're going to jump in here in chapter 8, is that there had become this division within the church where some of the people, uh, mostly people who came from like a pagan background who weren't Jewish at all, but came to the church from this completely outside perspective, 
they came and they understand that, wow, this Jesus thing is awesome. I can, you know, I can still live life. I can still enjoy things. I don't have any rules or obligations that I need to follow. I should follow the law of Christ. But the things that I do or don't do um, have less to do with my salvation than the righteousness of Jesus, the faithful actions of Jesus. So this is how the one group of people. Then on the other side, you had another group of people. Uh, You had people that came from a Jewish background, a Jewish heritage. This group of people uh, came, have a history of basically saying, I need to follow these laws. I need to do these things in order to be right with God. And so there's these two categories of people. uh, And essentially, one of them looked at themselves as the strong because I'm faith, I'm confident in who I am. And these other people, these other people who are relying on the law and who are following all these rules, they're the weak. So Paul basically says, neither one of you are right or wrong. You're both right. You need to follow what's convicted, how you're convicted. But the important thing here, and this is what we need to know, is there had become this division where there was a group of people that saw themselves up here, the strong, and they looked down upon the people who were the weak, the people who didn't have the same sort of knowledge or wisdom or understanding that they did. In other words, these were people who were in the way of them uh, being the people that they wanted to be. Okay? So, now, with that in mind, let's go here. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 8. It says, Be careful, however, uh, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So Paul's talking here to the group that considered themselves the strong. Um, four, verse 10, if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister from whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Even when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. The verse I really want us to see there is verse 11. Or sorry, verse 12. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is talking to these people who naturally are going to consider themselves up here, looking down on a group of people that they believe to be less than, less smart, less knowledge, less dignity, less value, people that are in their way. And he says, do not treat them with disrespect. Do not look upon these people who are different and other and less than you with contempt. Because when you do that, You're not only sinning against them, but what did he say? You're also sinning against Christ. And so, again, there's a lot of theological nuance here that we could spend a long time talking about what's actually going on in the city of Corinth. But what's important to see is that Paul is commanding these Christians to do away with any sort of mindset that would create a us and a them. Paul is saying there is no room in the gospel for you to think of yourself here and to put another group group of people, for whatever reasons, in a lower position so that you can look down upon them as a nuisance, as in the way, as less valuable, less dignified than you. Paul is doing away with any possibility of a us 
in them mentality within the Christian faith. And so for us, we're not really dealing with that sort of thing here, right? In the American church, there's not a weak and a strong faith necessarily that we deal with on a daily basis. However, you may have, you may have heard that there's an election coming up. Um, it's been on the news a couple times. Um, one of the uh, resounding statements of this election uh, is this continued rhetoric of us and them. Now, before we go any further with this, I'm not talking from here on out about policies or legislation. I think that there is a great way for us as Christians to engage with the political, political process. If we see immigration policy needs to be reformed, if we see welfare policy needs to be reformed, if we truly believe that these things need to change, there are proper venues in which we can go and we can vote in which we can engage in order to get these policies changed to a way that is fair and equal and all of that stuff. But I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is the language and the rhetoric that has been used to create a very strong us and a very weak them. For many of us, Maybe when we talk about politics, we talk about ah, those people, they're just coming here and they're taking our jobs or they're ruining our things or they're doing this and they're doing that. And again, not talking about policy here, but I'm talking about how you view a group of people, how you talk about a group of people, whether it's because of their ethnicity and their heritage, whether it's because of their views on gay marriage or abortion or whatever it is. (laughs) What our political climate does is it creates a us and of them. And it becomes really easy and really natural. And sometimes we even feel like we're standing up for the gospel when we start to think of us up here and them down here. And they're just in our way. Let's just get, we need to do something to get these people out of here because they're not us. And again, not policy here. <laughs> Go for it. Work on policy. Do what you need to do. I'm talking about how you think about people. Because the scripture is pretty clear that there is no room in the gospel for us and them. The scripture is pretty clear that there is no room in the gospel for the strong being better than the weak. Or for this people because they're this or they have these values or because they've done this in their past. Therefore, they are more important more valuable than this. And so, if your talk, when you, politics come up, when policies come up, if you slip into the us versus them rhetoric, I would argue that what you're doing is really out of line with the gospel. If the way that you view politics is, I want my party to win so that we can get away, do away with these people. (laughs) What you're doing is really out of line with the gospel. Again, I'm not talking about policy. Please, if you feel like there needs to be reform, there's proper ways to do that. Just like there are proper ways to deal, uh, an employee to deal with an employer. There are proper ways to deal with legislation and policy. But when it comes to thinking about a people group for whatever reason as down here and we're up here, 
you're out of line with the gospel. And if you support people, if you support candidates and politicians who attract that sort of us-versus-them mentality, who are attracting people who espouse the sort of hatred and division that the gospel is clearly against, your support is out of line with the gospel. If you've been here at all, you probably know that I don't really do politics. (laughs) I believe that my calling as a pastor is to the gospel, and I believe that that gospel is something that transcends politics, something that transcends parties, something that transcends politicians. That's something I'm firmly committed to. But there are times when the gospel needs to be the loudest thing that you hear. You can agree with 99% of what this person says, but if they are espousing hatred, division, and us versus them, that person is so far out of line with the gospel that you cannot, as a Christian, align yourself with them and still be true to your faith. We're not going to talk about names. We're not going to talk about people. We're just going to leave that out there. The gospel is so clear on this idea of contempt as sin that if that is part of your political mindset, you maybe need to rethink some things. So we've talked about the above. We've talked about the below. I want to finish uh, by talking about the one that I think is maybe easiest for us to miss. <laughs> and that's for the one that's with us. That's for the contempt for the people who are running alongside. And so, in order to illustrate this, we're going to go back to Ephesians. Back to Ephesians 5. Now, the context that we're going to be in here, Paul is going to be talking about husbands and wives. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the role that the husband should play. If you're not married, I don't want you to tune out at this point. Um, If you are not married and you at some point think that that might be a possibility, be paying attention here because the things that we talk about in the next couple minutes are things that you should have in your mind as you are dating or as you're pursuing those relationships. If you're not married and you don't intend to be married at any time in the future, um, maybe it'd be helpful to, to think of somebody else who's kind of at that same level. There's, there's some distinctions between the marriage relationship, obviously. Um, but I think the concepts of how to interact with people who are at the same level with you are significant. Or maybe this is something that you can use to remember to encourage others. But back to Ephesians, um, chapter 5. Um, Paul is, is back in the section where he's talking about different... Um, interactions and different relationships. He says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So all people are to submit to one another. And then in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husband as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of his church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. We're not going to dig too deep into that. We've talked about that before. Uh, but there is this idea Uh, that within the Christian household, uh, there is equal submission, and that uh, is seen when the wife follows the husband. But what comes next is more important than that, in my opinion. 
Because if the husband is the head of the household, he should be leading in this and he should be taking the first steps. And what does Paul say? Husbands, treat your wives as if they're slaves. Oh, nope. Sorry. He says this. I know that's what we wish he would have said sometimes, right? He says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, making her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, Paul is talking here to people who are essentially equal, right? He's just said, submit to one another. Now he's talking about the marriage. This isn't a boss. This isn't an others, but this is people who are equal. The example that Paul uses when he challenges husbands on how they should be treating their wives is the example of somebody who was literally willing to die in order to raise up that other person. The terms that Paul uses here, not only does he talk about Jesus, but he talks about uh, this redeeming, cleansing love. The language that Paul uses is dripping with gentleness. It's dripping with humility. It's dripping with everything that is opposite of the contempt that Jesus and Paul criticize. For Paul... The model of how you treat that person who is there with you is somebody who with humility and gentleness put the others above self. There's something about people who are at the same place as us, especially the people who we are closest to. So like your spouse or a sibling or your best friend. There's something about those relationships That makes it really easy uh, for us to kind of be people that we aren't (laughs) to anybody else. I think what it is, is we all have these really selfish, mean (laughs) tendencies that we hide and we're really good at hiding. Uh, But when we're with that person that we're the most comfortable with, um, that's when we kind of are the most ourselves. (laughs) And that's when that stuff starts to come out. Maybe I'm completely wrong on that, but that's kind of how I think it works. And so what we can tend to do is we can be great, loving, humble people in all these other areas of our lives. But when it comes to the person that's with us, our spouse, our friend, best friend, our siblings, whatever it is, uh, we slip into disrespectful, contemptuous attitudes towards that person. We speak to them in ways that we wouldn't speak to other people. We think of ourselves before we think of them. Uh, We treat them as Paul is criticizing these Ephesians, not as Christ in the church, but we treat them as slaves and masters. (laughs) As, well, you need to do what I'm going to tell you to do because I'm the boss. The other way around as well, right? We're not just talking husbands, wives, wives, husbands as well. Because we all can do that. We can all slip into 
the way of contempt. Within the gospel, within the way of the Christian faith, there is no room for speaking to your spouse as if they are below you. There is no room for treating your spouse, those who are closest with you, as if they have less value than you. If you're doing that, guys, if you are doing that, you are out of line with the gospel. In the words of Jesus, (laughs) you've got the fires of Gehenna waiting for you. There's judgment for people. who live and treat those who are equal with them with contempt. This is not just like, ah, you know, whatever, they're our spouse, they're fine. Paul is very clear (laughs) and uses a very specific example to show that that's not cool. That's not okay. Just as you wouldn't treat your boss like that, just as we've decided you're not going to treat those people like that, you don't treat him or her in that way. But we all do, right? We all do that. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm not talking about the occasional, right? We, we argue, we get in fights. That's part of, of relationships. But I'm talking about a consistent and a persistent contempt. These are hard things for us to face because, like I said when we started this, contempt is a sin that I think a lot of us have become okay with. And it's just like, yeah, this is just, you know, them, those, he, her, whatever. I don't, I don't commit adultery. It's fine. I don't murder. That's fine. Right, Jesus? Ew. This is a big deal. We're ending our series with this because it's a big deal. Because this is dangerous and destructive to you. It's destructive to the gospel. And it can be destructive to society as a whole. If we become a society of us and them, or if we become more of a society of us and them, that's not going to lead to good places. You bring that down to a microcosm of your relationship of me and them. That's not going to lead to good places. At work, that's not going to lead to good places. Contempt is a big deal. Jesus makes clear that this is a big deal. And so when he finishes saying what he said, Connor, if you can go to the next slide. Back in Matthew. Jesus continues when he, right after that, he says this. Therefore, so after this statement on contempt. Therefore, uh, next one. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come to offer your gift. So Jesus says, don't treat somebody with contempt. Don't say you fool. Don't say rakah. Then immediately after he says, actually, if you remember that you and your neighbor, your brother, are in this contemptuous relationship right now, don't come to church. <laughs> Stay home, even if you're on your way to the temple. Now, the, Jesus is giving the sermon way up north, 
The temple is way down in Jerusalem, days and days of traveling. Jesus is saying, I don't care how long you've traveled. I don't care how far you walked. I don't care how much money it costs you to get here. Your relationship with people is more important right now than your act of worship in the temple. That's ridiculous, right? Because the most important thing we can do is to worship God. Jesus seems to be indicating here that your relationship, how you treat your spouse, how you treat the others, how you treat your boss is worship, is directly connected to your spiritual state. This is not a, my relationship with God, my relationship with others. Jesus doesn't make that distinction. Jesus said the way that you treat others is directly connected to your worship, your relationship with God. And so if you're out of line here, you're out of line here. The life of the gospel is all of this together. It's understanding that the grace of God says that all people were created in the image of God. All people have within them a spark of the divine as we've sung this morning. And because of that, every single person, regardless of their ethnicity, their race, that's the same thing, their ethnicity, uh, their gender, their social status, their political views, whatever, every single person is therefore valuable. And you need to treat them in that same way. And if you're not, you're out of line and your relationship with God is out of line. This and this doesn't exist. (laughs) This is all tied together. So I imagine that we are all, or if you're anything like me, (laughs) that we're all a little uncomfortable right now because we all know that we are all wrong in this way. We all know that we're like these people walking to the altar and we have something off. Of course, as we've repeated throughout this series, the beauty of the gospel is that there's never a time in your life where you are too far out to come back. There's never a time in your life where you are just too far out of line with God that you can't return. That's the power of the gospel is there's always a chance to return. There's always forgiveness. The love of God is deeper far than Penner Pad could ever tell. Should have worked on that before I tried to go with it, right? This is the story of the gospel is we can be convicted by it and we can say like, eesh, I need to fix that. And you can, because the gospel says you can. And the forgiveness of Christ says you can. And so, as we leave this place, we all need to work on this. We all need to leave our sacrifice at the altar and restore those relationships (laughs) And then we can come back because it's all connected. How we treat other people is directly connected to your relationship with God.
So let's leave here uncomfortable, but let's let that uncomfortability produce change in our lives, in our thinking, in our mentality, in our actions. Let's not just leave this here and say, well, that was uncomfortable. Jim was kind of a jerk today. <laughs> let's leave this and say, Jim was kind of a jerk today, but <laughs> maybe he's letting the Bible be the jerk because that's my goal. It's really actually nice. I can kind of use the Bible as a shield. That's saying it. I didn't make this up. I didn't write this. <laughs> let's leave this place uncomfortable enough that we have to make changes in our life. We have to begin to view everybody with the same value and dignity that Christ views us because that is the heart of the gospel. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but all have been made right when they put their faith in the life, death, and resurrection. There is no difference. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, all are one in Christ. Let's leave here uncomfortable enough that we have to make changes. Let's pray. God, thank you that you redeemed us. God, thank you that you did not see us as the others who were too far out of line. God, help us to reflect that in the things that we do, whether it's our relationship with our boss or our superior, whether it's the way that we think of the other people or whether it's the people who are closest to us. God, help us to bring that same sort of love and value and dignity that you give us into our world. Because as Jesus reminds us, this is not a separate thing, but this is all connected. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that even though we mess up, there is always room uh, to come back. Thank you that your grace has forgiven us and help us to reflect that grace the way that we think, talk, live, and love. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Grace be with you.